All right, all right. Welcome to the Canvas Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up. It was a busy week for both of us at the Surface Navy Association's 36th Annual Symposium just outside of Washington, D.C. During the show, we sat down with Chief of Naval Personnel, Vice Admiral Rick Cheeseman, for an update on recruitment, retention, and quality of life issues for sailors, and with Austal USA for more on the Alabama shipbuilder's growing portfolio of ship construction. Those interviews are coming up. But first, a look at naval news this week. U.S. Navy warships and Navy and U.S. Air Force strike aircraft joined by forces from the United Kingdom struck Houthi targets in Yemen January 11th in retaliation for near-continuous Houthi attacks on merchant shipping in the Southern Red Sea. The strikes followed weeks of Houthi attacks on, according to U.S. Central Command, at least 27 merchant ships operating in international shipping lanes. More than 60 targets and 16 Houthi militant locations in Yemen were hit, according to CENTCOM, struck by multiple Tomahawk land attack cruise missiles launched from ships. Among the U.S. forces taking part were aircraft of Carrier Air Wing 3 flying from the carrier USS Dwight D. Eisenhower in the Red Sea, U.S. destroyers Laboon, Mason, and Gravely, and the British destroyer Diamond. The strikes were preceded by the biggest Houthi-launched attacks to date on shipping in the Red Sea. On the evening of January 9th, Houthis launched a complex attack of one-way attack aerial drones, anti-ship cruise missiles, and one anti-ship ballistic missile at international shipping lanes in the southern Red Sea. The ballistic missile, two cruise missiles, and 18 attack drones were shot down by U.S. Navy Super Hornet strike fighters and the four destroyers. The aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt and carrier Air Wing 11 deployed from San Diego January 11th. USNI News confirmed the news in the absence of a public statement from the U.S. Navy. It's the ship's first deployment since 2021. Carrier Carl Vinson already is operating in the Western Pacific only three months into her current deployment. A U.S. Navy MH-60 Romeo helicopter crashed into San Diego Bay in the early evening of January 11th near Naval Station North Island. All six aboard the Hilo were rescued by the standby safety boat and by the local federal fire department. The Seahawk belongs to Helicopter Maritime Strike Squadron 41, the training squadron for MH-60 Romeo helicopters. Tugs moved the carrier USS George H.W. Bush on January 11th, from Pierside at Norfolk Naval Station up the Elizabeth River to Norfolk Naval Shipyard, where the ship will complete a year-long maintenance availability, scheduled to be completed in July. Carrier Harry S. Truman completed her overhaul and left the shipyard in mid-December. In new ship news, USNS Cody TEPF-14 was delivered January 11th from Austell, USA in Mobile, Alabama to the U.S. Navy's Military Sealift Command. The first Flight 2 EPF has enhanced medical capability and a strengthened flight deck for operations in combat and austere areas. 
And on January 10th, Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro announced that the future Arleigh Burke-class destroyer DDG-142 would be named for Charles J. French, honoring a hero of the World War II Solomons campaign. Mess Specialist First Class French, a black man, performed courageously, saving 15 shipmates after their ship was sunk in September 1942, but his actions were little noted at the time. Research sponsored by the Surface Navy Association uncovered his true story, and the Navy awarded him posthumously in May 2022 with the Navy and Marine Corps Medal. USS Charles J. French is projected to be delivered to the Navy in 2031. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Well, Chris, as we mentioned at the top, it was indeed a busy week. Um, The way we're going to handle our discussion portion of the show this week is we're going to play our two interviews. As we said, we sat down with Chief of Naval Personnel, Vice Admiral Rick Cheeseman, and with Austell Executive Larry Ryder. Um, This first interview is your discussion, Chris, with Vice Admiral Cheeseman. We're here at the SNA with Vice Admiral Rick Cheeseman. He is the Chief of Naval Personnel. Um, obviously, you're, you're the guy in charge of all the people in I the am. Navy and how to get people in the Navy, how to keep them in the Navy, what to do with them when they're in the Navy. Every organization in the world right now is having problems in terms of recruiting people, attracting people, and keeping them. The U.S. Navy is no different than everybody else. Before we get into some of the details of your situation this year, um, you missed recruiting goals again this year, although you did better than you thought you would do. So your other problem is is usually retention. You're not doing too bad on retention right now. But one of the things people worry about is keeping enough sailors to operate the Navy. The British Royal Navy at the moment, just this very week, has announced that they're, I haven't quite announced it yet, but they are clearly considering decommissioning several ships, frigates, both of their amphibious ships, because of a lack of personnel. Much smaller Navy than the U.S. Navy. Our people do worry about things returning to the bad old days of the 70s, the hollow Navy. People, critics are always talking about that could happen again. Uh, ships deploying without enough sailors on board, ships unable to get underway because they can't qualify, they have enough qualified personnel to actually get underway even to train to deploy. Are you anywhere near that? Is that, is that a situation that, that bothers you, that worries you? When If, if anybody were to say that today, well, what's your reaction? Sure. Chris, thanks for thanks for taking the time to sit with me today. Um, <clears throat> first, a couple of things. In, in your question, you said that we missed recruiting again. 2023 was the first time we had missed it in a long time. So it wasn't an, an again aspect there. It was the first time. And... In 2024, we're, we're doing better than we were predicted to do to date in 24. We'll see how it goes. But recruiting is, is doing better. Uh, from a retention standpoint, uh, we're, we're, that's never been, at, you know, never been better. We're at an all-time high for our young people. 117% for Zone A sailors at zero to five years of service. And on the senior side, our senior list of folks at 108%, they are, they're responding to what we're asking them to do as well. So, um, so retention, excellent. Recruiting, some challenges. Working through it. The question about a hollow force. We work very hard with the fleet commanders. They set demand signal, that demand signal for what manning on individual ships or or units need to be. So so from an apprentice standpoint, 
the great majority of our gaps at sea are at that lower pay band because of our recruit, you know, in, in some part because of our recruiting challenges. Um, but ships are not le not leaving on deployment, not certified because of manning. That's because we work with the TICOMs for certain manning actions, moving folks around uh, outside of the normal PCS cycle. So that's problematic from a quality of service standpoint. So that's why it's imperative for us to really drive hard our recruiting efforts, get that back up to where we need to be from an accession standpoint so we can drive those number of main actions down. When you say, am I concerned about having to tie ships up uh, and not being able to operate them? Not right now. If we continue to have the recruiting challenges, that would be a discussion with the fleet commanders, but that's not on the table today. Okay, so story, there are stories that even the Gerald Ford deployed with a few hundred sailors less than what they needed. But that's not really happening right now? That's, uh, so that's, I would tell you that story um, uh, that, that I think you're referring to, I'm not sure exactly which story you're talking about, but Ford is manned to deployment requirements. Okay. Um, you're not you're not deploying ships without sh sh short of their required crews. As my understanding is the fleet commanders are not deploying ships that are not certified to go. Are there communities where retention problems are more exacerbated than others? Aviation, uh, logistics, submarines. Sure. So. so from a retention standpoint, it's all about the same, but we're doing fairly well uh, across the board. But at some of the higher technical skill sets, there are some recruiting challenges that are more exacerbated than others. Can you talk about some specifics there? Uh, so for, on the, the nuclear side of things, the cyber side of things, um, we, we did very well at the end of the year as we were focusing on it. But it, again, going into FY24, we have the same challenges going forward. So there is a big focus of effort on the higher end technical side for cyber and nuke force and others. And those are areas that are where those skills are in demand in the commercial. They absolutely world. are. Those people have no problem at all getting a career as soon as they start. Not at all. You're exactly right. But, you know, our retention stats are showing us, you know, once we get somebody in the Navy, they are you know, they're responding to what we need to do. We think we're incentivizing sailors to do the jobs we need them to do. It's, it's busting down that initial barrier and making sure, you know, hey, right now 9% of the force, 9% of the population is propensed to serve. We increase that by one or 2%, that could be upwards of 6,000 more recruits. So getting our message out, making sure, you know, the broader Navy community from contractors to active duty, retired, reservists, you know, everybody associated with the Navy, yourself associated with the Navy, we're talking about now a positive story about what the Navy is doing has an effect on our recruiting environment. Sure. Um, yesterday, the new uh, swell boss, Vice Admiral Brendan McLean, was talking about um, trying to make some changes and manning of ships during maintenance periods. Yes. Of course, the, 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 the poster child for this was the carrier George Washington. Uh, which was redelivered and back in service last right. year. But the longest refueling overhaul ever, six and a half years. Uh, they had a few suicides in that time. A lot of quality of life issues. No sailor signs up. You don't recruit people. That's right. To talk to them at the recruiting station about, hey, come on in. You can be at the That's shipyard. Right. It'll be really neat. Exactly. Put down Having done my shipyard time, I totally get it. <laughs> yeah. So nobody signs up to do that. Um, and it's a tough situation. The Navy relies on on crews to do a certain amount of that work, that's depending right. on the ship, depending on the length of the availability. Mm -hmm. But that's a negative thing. It's definitely having a negative effect. It does make people get out of the Navy, always has, if it goes on too long. Sure. I'm done with this. The heck with it. Um, I was going to do two more tours. No, I'm out. Um, you're, you talked today about that's that's happening with carriers mm -hmm. already trying to trying to change that that's construct. right but across the board 
Um, this this you know industrial environment is not what people put on the uniform. That's right. To do. So can you address that issue and how how are you going about this across the fleet? Sure. Just with a, with a, with a carrier in a particular way. Right. So you have to start somewhere. So that's why we started with the carriers exactly for the reasons that you've already cited. So the goal would be for if somebody's going to be if a unit is going to be in an overhaul for two years or more, the goal would be that. No individual sailor does more than two years in the yards unless it's an active decision uh, by the command or, or, or and that sailor itself. So we have put processes in place where, you know, as as a unit is entering an RCOH, for an example, we do an individual decision on every first-term sailor. How long have they been on board the ship already? How long should they be in the shipyard? What's their professional development look like? What is their skill set? What do they need relative to the work package? Can they stay or can they go? And if they do go, when does that billet need to be refilled? So it, it is an active decision now, and we're going to start doing that for the next carrier that goes in in 26. We'll work through that. What Admiral McLean was talking about was, you know, even for smaller avails, you know, there are some ratings that are 100% operational, OSs. You know, can we take risk in operational specialists? Yes. Sorry about that. That's right. Operational specialists, you know, even for shorter avails, six months, whatever it is, you know, do those OS, do those operation specialists need to be on the ship or can they be sent somewhere else in the same home port? So we're not disrupting your family. That's a quality of service issue. But where can we make an active decision ahead of time based on that sailor's professional development and the needs of the ship to make sure they're properly placed to affect readiness appropriately? One of the, let's go back to recruiting a little bit. One of the things that, that, that strikes me a lot, and has for a long time, um, when you talk to people, I'm talking about primarily enlisted sure. sailors, uh, where, do, where, where do they come from? They tend to come from Smallville. And I've lived in Smallville. Mm-hmm. Right? Me too. But, uh, you know, they're not from the megalopolises. Uh, they're not from New York City. Okay. LA, they're from Tennessee, they're from Iowa, they're from someplace small. Kids, you, you go see the world. It's always struck me as, a, as on the one thing, there's a there's sort of a wanderlust. Let me get out of here and go see the world. On the other hand, it's like, what's wrong with all the people in the, in the big cities? They don't, they just don't see the military as, as something to do. Um, and I'm, again, I'm speaking not officers, but enlisted. Mm-hmm. Is that a trend that holds? Is that is that something that is that a problem? Is it something, or or, or the other way around? Is that does that mean that you you direct your efforts? more into, into smaller states and more rural communities than, than the big cities. There are a large amount of, there, there's a bunch of different diverse categories on how we figure out propensity, right? And we definitely have to put uh, the effort where we know we're going to get recruits. So to your point, not we have 26 different naval talent acquisition groups, right? Not all 26 have the same goal because of the exact things you're talking about. So we, we analyze a bunch of different data sets in an effort to, you know, Put our talent where it's needed most, where we can, you know, where we can um, take advantage of the best leverage to get, you know, the most, you know, you know get the, the most amount of people in the Navy given the, the situation we're in now. Is it true that it's generally more rural than, than city? Yes, it is. Uh, but I wouldn't say cities are a, a dry hole. I and mean, we've definitely got, we've got some action in some of those as well. Um, I would say the environment uh, pre-COVID and post-COVID is definitely different. We're trying to get back to what normal looks like and analyzing data every day on sort of where that is, um, is a large part of our efforts. I, I, w- I wouldn't say that, you know, 2019 is the same as 2024. It's, it's definitely a different place. Yeah. I'm always interested in the, 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 you know, getting the appeal of the Navy out to the public. Yes. 
Um, the Blue Angels, which is probably the most well-known entity there is, and the whole point of the Blue Angels is recruitment. That's why the Navy said outreach, right absolutely. Too, when they needed, we're still going to need young people to come in the Navy, even though everybody's getting out. Mm -hmm. um, it's wildly successful. Uh, people, it, it grabs people's attention and enthusiasm at a at a very young age, and then when they get of age, they want to sign up. Sure. Um, the fleet is. We've been trying to do fleet. Fleet leaves. Yes. It's been a pretty popular <clears throat> cultural thing that's been even getting more popular over the last 15, 20 years around the country. Can you just talk about the effectiveness of that and do, do you really see a bump in recruitment? I mean, it's a lot of effort, it's a lot of mm -hmm. money. You know, you're putting you're putting a lot into that effort right. to get maybe, you know, 12 people. Is it is that is that sort of what you're looking at or is it, is it even better than that or what? I don't know. I don't remember the exact stats off the top of my head, um, but I can tell you that when we have targeted outreach efforts uh, with with Fleet Weeks with an active recruiting uh, component to it, it does lead to recruits on the back end. The exact numbers I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, certainly in the last year, year and a half, as we try to treat every Fleet Week opportunity like one of those Blue Angel equivalents, uh, we are seeing positive outcomes. It's not just about the recruiters. It's about the commander in charge of Fleet Week being actively engaged. Uh, and we're seeing more and more of that over time. The partnership between the fleet and my team and certainly Chimfo and the outreach efforts has never been better. Okay. Well, sir, thank you very much. We've been talking to Vice Admiral Rick Cheeseman. He is the Chief of Naval Personnel. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I appreciate the time and happy to do it. Chris, that was a great discussion. Um, as we mentioned to the Admiral before we went on air, um, we're really proud of the fact that um, our fleet numbers over the last year continue to rise. And so the opportunity to sit down with the CMP made great sense, not just because um, he's known well throughout the service community, um, but because as we continue to add active duty sailors, it makes sense to cover down on those personnel issues. Now, in this next interview, as I said, we're going to talk to Austell Executive Larry Ryder. Um, you have been down to Austell. We've been down to Austell uh, a few times uh, in the last couple of years, and it's been really helpful to uh, meet with Larry both on and off the record at conferences like SNA. So without further ado, let's hear from Larry Ryder uh, with his update on the Austell shipyard. And we're back with Larry Ryder. Larry is the Vice President of Business Development with Shipbuilders Austell USA. You've been on the show before. Larry, it's great to see you again. Great to see you again, Chris. Happy New Year. Happy and Happy New yeah. Year to you. So, uh, Larry, we, we, we've talked before. It seems like, uh, you know, every time we talk to you guys, uh, you're doing something else. You're into yet another program. Um, of course, for years, you were, you know, widely known as building the Latrol Combat Ship and the Expeditionary Fast Transport, EPF. Both of those programs are, are coming to an end. The end is definitely in sight. But you are rolling on any number of, of programs right now. Some of them we've talked about before. Some of we've heard about before. There's some we haven't talked much about before. So can you just run down your activities right now coming out of Austin, USA? Sure. Um, we, as you said, the uh, the Latoral Combat Ship, the Independence Variant, and the EPF were the two programs we've worked for quite a while. So until a couple of years ago, we had two programs. Both of those are executing well and performing well in the fleet, so they still have our attention. We have two more LCS to deliver and two more EPF to deliver, and then we will transition into 
on the aluminum side. The Expeditionary Medical Ship is the newest uh, award we, we received right before Christmas, a nice Christmas present for the workforce. Um, we've got a contract to build three of the uh, the EMSs. Uh, those will go down the uh, aluminum side of the line behind the, uh, the last EPF, EPF-16, uh, along with the deck houses for the offshore patrol cutter. On the steel side, um, that's where we've really had some pretty significant growth. We uh, we have the offshore patrol cutter OPC for uh, for the Coast Guard, eleven ships. We have Tagos for the Navy, uh, seven ships. We're building the TATS program or building some of the TATS ships. The salvage tugs. Yeah, towing, towing and salvage ships. We're building the uh, a dry dock for the Navy AFDM. Um, We've got uh, submarine work, uh, building submarine modules for uh, for electric boat, and you know we're building those out and outfitting them in, in Mobile and shipping them up to uh, to electric boat to um, you know to put into the uh, the finished submarines. Uh, we're building modules for um, aircraft carriers, the aircraft carrier elevators, the aircraft elevators for uh, CVN seventy nine and eighty. Eighty eighty one. Is it 1881? Right. I'm sorry. You're right, yeah. Chris. Um, 1881, we, um, we're building the surveyor drones for sail drone, um, USV. We're building the, uh, we just launched and put in the water the uh, OUSV-3 um, in support of a contract Vanguard, with, uh, right. with Vanguard, with, with L3 Harris. Um, so it's a pretty diverse and broad portfolio. We're, um, you know, we're we're in a pretty interesting place in terms of uh, getting our backlog up, growing our workforce again, and expanding the uh, the facility. So we've had uh, nice growth, and now we're really focused on execution to make sure we keep delivering you know our ships on time, quality ships to uh, to the fleet. So one of the things I, I think about, I mean, obviously, you know. A few years ago, the future of the company was in doubt. You had these two long-standing production lines, very mature, but they were they were ending. Um, what are you going to do next? And yeah. all, all shipbuilders don't worry about what's happening now or next year. They worry at least about five years, if not seven and ten years out. What are we going to do then? Yeah. And there was a time when that didn't that picture was was very much in doubt. I think Austin went out, did a lot of endeavors in a lot of areas, trying to trying to seek work and oh crap a lot of this stuff you succeeded you brought it home so now you you know be careful what you wish for you have all these programs and it's it's an incredibly diverse portfolio you have now not not at all what you were doing four four or five years ago absolutely but i also think about the support structure that goes with this you need a lot of managers you need engineers you need naval architects you need a lot of people do liaison with these different offices all these every program you talked about has a different office that you need relations with i mean those are all there's a lot of different customers there's no one single entity here i mean that's a that's a huge undertaking that's the we're not just talking about the workforce in the yard you know welders and pipe fitters we're talking about a whole other level of people that are working at computers and offices yeah, yeah, that I appreciate that because that's going to help me get some more uh, people in my department, maybe. But um, absolutely, it's uh, you know there's a lot of focus, and rightfully so, on the on the trades and the production folks that are actually building the the ships. Obviously, the most important folks in the yard are, are the folks out there building. But uh, 
we we are growing you know program managers uh, you know the financial folks like you said the uh, you know the business development team the uh, customer relations team you know as you mentioned we've got several program offices and PEOs the Coast Guard we've got a uh, a design contract with the Army for um, for MSVH so you know it's just across the board the um, you know the the office side of the the uh, yard is growing as well and you know part of this growth is um, you know re reengineering the the structure as you mentioned we had two very mature programs that were uh, um, operating well block by so we were you know really deep into serial production um, now to go to a, a pretty diverse portfolio you know our engineers are in a, you know, in a much different environment than they were when right. they were, you know, managing change orders for the most part. Now they're, they're designing different ships. They're dealing with steel programs, different customers. Um, so it, it's, it, it's been a good challenge, um, but it has been a challenge and, and we're still going through that. How does the, uh, how does the organization need to look to, to properly manage this, this backlog of diverse programs. So Austell appears to be in play in terms of who's going to own, own, own Austell. And that's, this is, a, this is on the worldwide market. Your sure. current company is the Australian company, Austell. Um, you're the you're the USA subsidiary of that. Um, multiple sources, multiple publications are talking about, you could be, you know, who would buy Austell, what could be playing. Will it even be sold? May not be sold. It's not a done deal. But, and of course, people are always very, very, uh, Close held about these things, and until they're actually ready for an announcement, um, and I know you don't want to make an announcement here today. We'll talk about <laughs> not going to have that breaking about, news for you today. <laughs> people talk about you know, a Korean company uh, yeah. buying you all, and what, what are the pluses and minuses for that? Uh, this, is, this is all well and good, but in the meantime, you got to go to work every day, and the people that you work with have to go to work with every day. And you have to sort of put that aside, but it does lend a certain element of uncertainty to things. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's got to kind of wear on people after a while, or after a while you just kind of forget about it until it hits. I mean, how is that playing out for you at the moment? You're right. I mean, it's been going on for, um, you know, playing out publicly in the media for, for a couple of years now. Um, but like you said, you know, we we focus on controlling what we can control. And, right. you know, it sounds kind of trite, but... Uh, I, I can't do a whole lot about whether we're going to be acquired or whether it's true what you read in the paper in the morning. And so we, I, I think the thing that we've got going for us now to kind of counteract some of that uncertainty that our workforce may feel is we, we've got a very strong backlog. You know, we're continuing to invest in the yard. The facility's growing. You know, if if we get bought, you know, we'll adjust and deal with that. But, uh, you know, for today, we've got programs to execute and, uh you know, we we've got our owners down in um, in in Henderson, and um, you know that that's that's the way it is today, and and it may be that way for years to come. Well, so. are you, uh, it's, it's been about a year since you all opened up a new facility in San Diego. Yes. All right. This is a, an upgrade of an existing yard that pretty much kind of did yachts and stuff, and now you're now it's you're getting the naval and some commercial business. Yeah. How, I mean, how's that going out there? You've got your dry dry dock out there now. Yeah, we've um, yeah we've we've had a uh, availability in the yard. Um, our dry dock is there. Um, you is know, dry dock and service yet? Is it it is not. We 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 have some more capex to uh, to finish. We we had some uh, bumps in the road with uh, permitting issues in uh, San Diego to finish our dredging. With what? With permits, permits. Um, environmental issues in uh, in San Diego to uh, to finish 
some of the dredging and some of the uh, upgrades we needed to make to the facility. So we're a little behind schedule on that, but um, hopefully by next year we'll be talking about our, uh, our, our backlog in San Diego. So it's a, it's a focus area for us right now is to get that up and running. Before we go, we have to talk about workforce a little bit. So, yeah. Um, the, the stuff we've been hearing from different people this week, which is including shipbuilders and the Navy for that matter, um, recruiting is sort of going okay. So the Navy itself is down a little bit, but doing better than they expected. HII said they're actually doing better at recruiting than they expected. They hit all their goals. Yeah. They have two yard, big yards in Virginia yeah. and right near you yep. in Mississippi. Um, but retention is a major problem. Everybody's you know, talking about that. So can you sort of characterize that situation down in uh, Mobile? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, our, our situation is similar to what others are describing that, um, you know, we're ramping up on hiring for the, the new work. Uh, we're, we're really going back to what we used to do very well when we were growing um, in the past. And that's getting out into the trade schools, getting out the high schools and building up that workforce, you know, getting into the colleges and universities and recruiting, um, which was something that kind of had atrophied for us in particular because we were steady state with those two programs, as you mentioned. Um, retention is a challenge in, you know, people able to work from home, work remotely. Um, so we're we're working to develop the programs to to keep those folks in the yard. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's it, again, it's a focus area. It's tough. We're making our numbers, but um, it, it, it's not easy. In Mobile, it, what's your what's your workforce right now? Uh, we're uh, about thirty one hundred right now. Thirty one hundred. Mm -hmm. What would you like to be at? To, we're right about on slope right now, but we want to hire a little ahead of need so that, uh, you know, we don't have just pure green workforce coming in when we need them. Um, we, we want to grow about 1,200 folks over the next 18 months to, uh, to stay on track. So about 43 is what, you, what you'd like to be at, somewhere around there? Yeah, correct. Uh -huh. Total 4,300 or so. Yep. Okay. And then, um, you know, as we grow with some of the other work, then we'll push past that. Okay. That's everybody. That, that's trades. That's managers. Yeah, that's, that's total workforce. Right. Yes, sir. All right. Well, folks, we've been talking to Larry Ryder, the Vice President of Business Development at Austin, USA, located in beautiful downtown Mobile, Alabama. Larry, as always, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Chris. And you're always welcome down in the yard. You know that. So. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Well, Chris, lots going on there uh, in Austin. I can't wait to get back down there and see all the work that continues to be done. So let's take this last block. Um, those two were great, but this is kind of my favorite is when you and I get to compare notes about what we saw and heard uh, over the, the few days that we were there. You were there all three days. Um, I was there on Tuesday and Wednesday. We each kind of made a list of things that stood out to us. I'll start with you. Well, I think overwhelmingly people are just in a good mood. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, this is an unstated situation. People don't say it out loud. But, uh, you know, the fact that uh, last last year's very long stunt from the senator in the Senate, from uh, the football coach in the Senate from Alabama uh, to hold up multiple senior level uh, appointments is done with. And at long last, over the last few weeks, people are now starting to be where they're supposed to be. They're in their jobs at long last. One, right at the top of that list is Vice Admiral Brendan McLean, who's the commander of the Naval Service Forces, the SWO boss. And of course, the Service Navy Symposium, it is SWO boss's show. He was in a good mood from the get-go. 
Um, people were in a good mood to hear him. There was just a whole lot of enthusiasm on the floor everywhere you looked. I mean, people are just happy to get back to work, happy to get this silliness out of the way. Um, Swole Boss is ready. He's he's ready to go. Um, he had a, he had some interesting themes that we've not heard a lot about before. Uh, the things that really got my attention, you know, perked your perked up right away. Um, Latrol Combat Ship, the much maligned, forever maligned Latrol Combat Ship. Uh, I love LCS, said Vice Admiral McLean. I love LCS, and I want L and I love LCS with lasers. So obviously, with, the, with all these conflicts and the all this conflict now in the Red Sea, all these aerial drones coming down, one of the systems the Navy's been developing for more than a decade, well more than a decade, are laser systems, a multiplicity of directed energy efforts. And there's only a handful that are actually deployed. Most of those are on destroyers and that are in the in the Seventh Fleet, uh, based out of Japan. There aren't any on the ships that are operating in the Red Sea. Um, that might change. Uh, he talked about, he went on at some length about where are my lasers and, you know, how 10 years ago, everybody was saying they were going to be here in five years and, uh, five years was five years ago. And where are they today? Um, that was sort of reflected on the floor. You know, the floor of these shows is where industry shows what it does and what it's got available. Not, not just what they're doing for the Navy, what they can do. They want to sell their products to the Navy. And, if, if industry thinks there's something happening, that there's a requirement, that there's an interest, industry, you know, trucks its stuff and uh, out to the show, puts it on the floor, says, look at this. Um, there was nothing, there was, there was almost virtually no laser systems on the floor. There was only, only, only one depiction I saw, uh, and that was General Atomics, and that was just actually in part of a mural. It wasn't, wasn't even pointing into it directly. Um, but there was a lot of, uh, I mean, Swoboss started it and it was echoed in other panels throughout the show about where are my lasers. And I'm sort of looking ahead to Sea Air Space, the, 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 the biggest Navy show, which is in April. Um, and, uh, I'm one, I'm, I'm going to be looking to see if there aren't more displays because there, there, there's no shortage of vendors who have products they'd like to sell the Navy, uh, on, on lasers, but there aren't, there's just not a whole lot happening. So that that was good. Those were those were two big things that just popped out right away. I love LCS and I love LCS with lasers. I was really impressed with um, the energy. This kind of goes along with what you would say about good mood, but the energy from the speakers. So in years past, I, I would say like if you know if there was a a yin and a yang, the positive was always the energy you felt on the floor, and then you sort of had to endure the speeches. Um, and you know, it was sort of the, okay, I'm here. I might as well listen. That paradigm was kind of flipped this year. I felt you know, you mentioned Brendan McLean, um, who, who really was, I, I thought the, the, the speaker of choice in terms of information and, and listening to, um, you know, somebody with passion and excitement, boy, he's ready to, uh, to take on the role of Swoboss. Um, you had the chief of Naval operations who rolled out her first version of, uh, of her guidance, very much focused on, on war fighting, um, which is very appropriate given what the surface force is encountering in the Red Sea. Um, you kind of got the same old, same old from the uh, Secretary of the Navy. And I don't necessarily mean that to be pejorative, but I mean, we've gotten used to hearing from him. Um, there was great stuff from uh, the uh, um, the other ENCODE heads and the other surface leaders, in including actually the Marine Corps. There was a little bit of, I, I guess, news out of the 
the conference. I mean, you mentioned the lasers. There were lots of people focused on that, but um, this making it official that um, the Constellation, the first Constellation frigate is going to be a year um, behind. Um, that to me, I thought was a little bit of a damper on, on that excitement. I mean, here is a platform that um, the surface Navy has been very excited about that they said they've needed. Um, and then now we're, you know, going to have to wait uh, in, in additional year, which was already a long process. If you ask folks that were close to it, you know, who had hoped that these ships would be in the fleet um, in, in, you know, a matter of two or three years versus four or five. Now it looks like it's going to be six or so years after uh, the contract was awarded before it actually makes it uh, or before that first ship is delivered. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Lots of positivity um, and, you, you know, lots of uh, excitement about the, the surface leadership uh, and, and the things that they're doing to support uh, those forces in the Red Sea, those forces uh, in Indo-PACOM. Um, I just wish we had better shipbuilding news. That that's true. Um, you know, I have to say one of the commanders uh, in an almost an equally ebullient mood was uh, Vice Admiral Jim Downey at uh, NAVC, the new, yeah. new Naval Sea Systems Command commander. I mean, clearly, you know, both of those officers, McLean and Downey, um, spent their time uh, well. They were both they they familiarized themselves with an awful lot of programs. They formulated a lot of things that they wanted to do. They clearly were were ready to take over once they got they finally got in. I was at the NAVC change command uh, last week and. Um, I mean, again, another situation where people are just in a good mood to get to work. Uh, I'm not so sure everybody working for Admiral Downey is going to be in a good mood. I think he's going <laughs> to break some things. Um, but that's sort of something he has a talent for. Um, and we'll we'll see what happens. I know that one of his top focuses is going to be on the public yards, the Navy's public shipyards, um, starting off with Norfolk Naval Shipyard. Um, and, you know, we'll see where that goes. But uh, there, there truly is a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot to look at there. Actually, we hope to have Admiral Downey on our show um, within within a month or two, and, and we'll, we'll we'll get a lot closer to what he's planning to do. Um, I do want to go. I do want to go back because this is going to be something that Admiral Downey looks at. I do want to go back to that constellation story right. that that came out. Um, sure. You know, and, and sort of look at just very briefly, kind of talk about shipbuilding in general. Um, you, you know, th this. I guess if there's a, a blessing in disguise, maybe this is the impetus, th this delay to have, you know, the secretary in response to this or in parallel to this is not sure exactly if the time, how the timing was meant to be, had said that he wants to, uh, you know, have a, a commission or a, a panel look at shipbuilding across the Navy to see, you know, what are the obstacles, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. But that's a, um, that's a, that's a 45 day effort. He, he announced during the show. Right. He wants he, want, he, he wants a report in 45 days on the state of shipbuilding in the country. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, you know, it, we spend a lot of time with shipbuilders and, um, you know, whether it's, uh, um, you know, Fink and Terry, whether it's Austell, whether it's uh, HII who, who sponsors this podcast. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff going on in those yards and there just seemed to be, and I'm sort of pantomiming, so I apologize for the audience. It just feels like at times the Navy and the shipbuilding community is not on the same plane, right? right? That there's a lot of action going on with both groups, but they're not they're not in sequence. Um, and so maybe this uh, may, maybe this panel, maybe this review, you know, with this tight turnaround will help bring them into a sequence and help make some of this effort, you know, sort of all pull in the right direction. Y your thoughts on that? 
I think it's going to miss the mark again. I think it's. I think it starts off with the wrong premise, and that is by saying shipbuilding writ large. Um, one of the absolute fundamental tru truisms about these yards, which I don't think conveys, and people do not demonstrate an understanding of, is that there are no two shipyards that are alike. Um, if you're, you know, you start with they're in different places. You start with their geography and what they have to work with. Um, you go from what is their workforce, what is their local government support, what is their infrastructure, what can they do, what's been done in the past. They're every single one of them, all of them, is its own entity. They have similar. They're dealing with a similar business. They have similar methods. But uh, what works really well in one location does not necessarily work well in another at all. And that's that's sometimes they've gotten into great trouble when somebody was very successful, for example, in San Diego and working with the with, with the system out there, taking those same principles going up to Bath, Maine, and it, everything blows up in your face. It, it absolutely backfires. Um, it's not a one size fit all fits all business anywhere in any shape or form. Um, Austell has a, has a very unique situation. They're on the Gulf Coast. They're only about 35 minutes away from um, Pascagoula, where uh, HII has the has the largest shipyard in the country. They're still different. Um, they they draw from similar workforces. They certainly have the same climate, but they have different situations. Uh, Marinette, uh, and of course, I was up there in October um, when we talked to Mark Vandroff uh, up there at the time. Um, I saw all three ships that are all three classes that are under construction. Uh, the fact that the frigate is late has been known for a while. It's sort of official now. Right. Um, and the Navy didn't announce this until like four o'clock on the last day of their show. So not like they were, they were upfront about it. Um, but you know, it's now official. It's about a year late. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. it starts with the redesign. It was not ready to go when they awarded the contract. They spent a, spent a lot more time than they thought redesigning the ship. Uh, that's contributed a lot. Marinette has issues with all three of its programs, the patrol combat ship, the Saudi ships, uh, Saudi multi-mission combat ship, ships that are up there, and the Constellation class. Those are those are different customers. You know, the Saudis, trying one among the issues up there is trying to get the Saudis to make decisions. Well, Good luck with that. Uh, that's that was that that that's that's really uh, uh, the need the patience of Job dealing with some of that stuff. That's not there is no single issue. Fincantieri has made an unbelievable inv uh, investment up there in terms of capital uh, investments. Their facilities they are ready to to, to go. Um, it's much bigger than um, than I think people realize, and it's almost complete. Um, new ship lift, new 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 facilities everywhere around. Their biggest problem is there in Marinette, Wisconsin, and attracting a good workforce up there to not just come there, stay there, learn how to do the job right, um, but then stay there year after year after year. And that is that's a that's a real challenge. It's hard for them, um, and and they are suffering from it. They're down a few hundred workers. Um, they're working really hard to attract people, but that's their number one problem by far. And you, you can throw all the money you want at it, and Fincantieri has, uh, but at some point, where are the workers? And everybody does that. You heard just heard Emerald Cheeseman um, talk about that, right? Um, and you know, it's and you know, we heard earlier from um, um, Chris Kastner at uh, at Huntington Ingalls where they're they're doing pretty well. 
recruiting people. Their problem is retention, keeping them, making them stay. Um, some people can't have trouble, have trouble, you know, recruiting people. Then you heard the Navy's having trouble recruiting people, but retention's doing pretty good. Um, but Marinette has it coming and going both ways. Um, these are, these are issues that everybody in the world really is dealing with. When I was in Turkey in November, you know, they, they're worried about their workforce as well. Um, it, it is a tough thing. I'm not trying to make excuses for people. Sure. It's like, let's get going, but there are realities and it's, it's fine to make speeches and we're going to have to do better and all this stuff. That's great. That's really easy for anybody to say. That's a whole lot harder for anybody to dealing to, to deal with. And um, we'll just see. I mean, the pressure needs to be on for sure. Uh, it is, it, you know, it does come with the territory. But um, I, I do I would, worry I about would, this one size fits all aspect that, you know, we have to do better everywhere. It's, like, it's not the same everywhere. Even even the naval shipyards. Norfolk Naval Shipyard is is the biggest shipyard. It's not Puget Sound, which is which is, is the next biggest, which is pretty darn big. They have different situations. Pearl Harbor has a situation small. It's different from Portsmouth and um, New Hampshire or Maine, depending on your flavor. But uh, they all have different issues. Um, but just keep at it. Yeah, I mean, just to put a bow on this, I'd really like to see, for all the reasons that you just described, I'd like to see the Navy take a look inward. Um, you've got a new NAVC, you've got a new uh, SWO boss that both bring a lot of energy. I'd like that 45-day review to look and say, what can the Navy do to make things easier on industry, to, to inspire a sense of urgency both within the Navy and within industry, um, come up with a list of not a thousand things, but five things that they concentrate on over the next year to tick away at some of these nagging issues um, across shipbuilding, recognizing that they're not all the same. But I think that looks got to be internal instead of external. Kicking your partners is not going to work. We, we've seen it uh, in the past and it hasn't worked. I think the Navy can find some things on their side that can make this uh, this better. Before we go, though, the last thing I want to mention, Chris, is there was a little bit of a turnover. We mentioned people in new jobs. Um, I want to wish fair winds and following seas to our good friend, Captain Bill Erickson, who uh, turned over the job of executive director to uh, retired Navy Captain Chris Bushnell. Chris is now, I think of today, it, he's LinkedIn official. Um, he is now the executive director of the Service Navy Association. We're looking forward in the next week or so. We wanted to give them a week to catch their breath, uh, to have both of them on to really, you know, thank Bill and hear from him, um, give him a couple minutes to uh, to share some of his memories and, and to honor him and then to welcome Chris um, to uh, the discussion uh, with, with our audience. But uh, that was also, for me, a highlight of uh, of this event. That's true. I look forward to having him on, even if it is not another Chris. We have another <laughs> Chris around here already. But Well, in addition to uh, celebrating uh, the turnover of SNA leadership, it really was great to meet and hear from so many of you last week. Um, this is uh, the highlight, really, for Chris and I in doing this podcast is to get feedback uh, some of you even told us we were doing a good job. Others told us where we could get better. Uh, but thanks for coming up and uh, and finding us throughout the week. Folks, I think that's going to do it for us for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishers Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. 
HII, delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Hey.